You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you feeling this week? First day of summer, Chad. How you think I feel? It's the longest day of the year. The solstice, right? Summer solstice today, June 20th. That's right. My son's birthday. Hey, son happy birthday, one, Prince. one years old today. Uh, I would encourage people to do whatever they have to do to hack into your Facebook and see the picture you posted of your son. Because he, even at one year old, and in fact, even at like two months old, has the Chad Dundas far away and vaguely disdainful stare down cold he also has steely blue eyes though unlike me so so he's a white walker you could say he's a better version of me you could i mean he's only one so i don't want to jump to any conclusions i'm very willing to jump to that conclusion i already declare him better than you (laughs) he could still fuck it up in a lot of ways so could you a lot of time that's true. so could you i will already have in in numerous ways the clock hasn't run out here the existence of this podcast a gleaming example of the (laughs) multiple ways i've fucked things up each week we fuck it up anew Uh, I heard that your house has been infected with hand, foot, and mouth disease. That's right. What is that like? And do you have it? I I think I have a little touch of it. Okay, so now you're here sitting on my chair. Yep. Touching my dining room table. That's right. Um, It's in adults fairly mild, I think. At least from what I was told, it's either really bad or fairly mild. And I think mine is fairly mild. Like, I don't feel bad, but, like, there's weird spots on my hands. Uh Come on. You bringing a pox into my house? Just a little bit of a pox. It's a minor pox. And frankly, your kids are going to get that pox anyway. It's all over town. I don't know if you noticed that. They've probably already had it. Uh, new sponsor alert. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by Jimster. Jimster is a new smartphone app that you can use to design your workouts as well as keep your routine at the gym and your diet fresh and on point. The creator, our guy Mark, is a CME podcast fan from pretty much day one. You know, we like to support the people who support the podcast, so we're pleased to have Jimster on board as our flagship sponsor for the next few weeks. Ben, tell the people what Jimster does. Well, Chad, Jimster is an all-in-one health and fitness app available for iTunes and a- iTunes and Android. You can use it to organize, maintain, or create a whole new workout routine. Simply choose the amount of exercise you want to do, the muscle groups you want to target, and the fitness equipment available to you, and let Jimster do the rest. Yeah, they're actually going to send us a couple of uh, copies of the apps so we can try it ourselves, but my understanding is that you can just take it to the gym, select from over 70 pieces of equipment available in the Gymster app, save multiple gym presets in case you work out sometimes at the local athletic club and sometimes right in your dumpy old garage gym. I do both. Uh, And then you're ready to go. You can choose between a manual exercise program or a random mode. The random mode creates unique and exciting workouts that eliminate the monotony of doing the same thing day after day. Gymster remembers the equipment available to you and only returns to the exercises that you can do based on where you are. Uh, It also has over 135 meals and recipes available, and they're constantly adding new ones. Recipes like pink peppercorn beef filet, sweet potato crisps, and Ben, I know you're going to like this one, vegan burgers inside homemade non buns. 
Yeah, speaking my language there. So, Ben, tell the people where to get and how to get the Gymster app. Well, Chad, they just have to go to the App Store inside iTunes or for their Android phones. Uh, you can try the Gymster app for free, and if you like it, you can upgrade to Gymster Pro for just $2.99. That's $2.99 American. Uh, take control of your personal workout today with Gymster. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast in round number one. Can you think of a more depressing end for Fedor Emelianenko than hiding out in Russia, narrowly scratching out decisions over dudes like Fabio Maldonado? What's that you say? Maybe getting crushed by Brock Lesnar in the UFC? Hmm, fair enough. And in round number two, so a former light heavyweight and middleweight got worked by a lightweight in a welterweight fight on Saturday. All hail the large and in-charge version of Donald Cerrone. And in round number three, the Wonder Man, greater than sign, the Water Boy. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. So the first two pieces of listener mail, Ben, are both about the Valerie Letourneau-Joanne Calderwood fight this past weekend, uh, which had a lot of ins and outs, a it lot did. of ups and downs. So I don't know if we should do them one at a time or if I should read them both and we should take it part and parcel, do the whole thing all at once. I think they're kind of separate issues, so let's do them one at a time. All right, the first one is from Tom Hughes. He watched, just watched, he writes, just watched Letourneau versus Calderwood, which was a great strap, a great scrap. And Trouble, which is Valerie Letourneau's nickname. I don't feel it's well known enough where you can just call her Trouble, but yeah. okay. Spent a lot of time messing around with her shirt or whatever Reebok and the UFC want to call it. And it appeared to be causing her some difficulties. From my perspective, the top looked really loose and was getting in the way and doing its best to flash her business to the entire world. Does the blame lie with Reebok and would rash guards be the way forward? Uh, so, Ben, I'm going to come out and say at this point, can we just say that the uh, Reebok uniform, UFC uniform, has pretty much been a disaster for the female athletes? It's crap. Yeah. It's, and it's not just them. Uh, you remember Uriah Faber's pants nearly coming down. True. N nearly yeah. flashing that. The, the, I would say the, the women fighters, though, have taken a, a more high-profile brunt of the uh, the crappiness of the Reebok gear. Since this is the second fight now where we've had uh, borderline wardrobe malfunction. The first, had... one, the first one was not even borderline. Yeah. It was full-on. That's right. Uh, and... As for, does the blame lie with Reebok? Well, I don't really know who else you blame there. It seems like you don't see this incidence of wardrobe malfunctions in Invicta, where it's all female fights and they all just get to pick their own stuff and come there with you know gear that they trust and know. So it does have to seem like it's coming on Reebok's end, right? And I don't know if it's just that the... Stuff isn't quality enough. I mean, I, I've been up close and seen some of the Reebok fight kit stuff, both for the men and women, and just to the to the eye, it doesn't seem like super high quality. I don't know. But I, it also, I think, is that they have, in many ways, taken a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to outfitting the UFC fighters. And so maybe they are not exactly custom-fitting this stuff to each fighter. They're just like, what do you, you, what do you wear? Oh, you look like a... You're like a medium, Valerie. We'll send you a medium. Hopefully that works out. Which is ironic, I guess, because the, at the the introduction of the Reebok and UFC outfitting policy, uh, the, the you know the 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 gay law uh, 
fashion show style presentation they did, which was in itself a dumpster fire. The flexibility. The flexibility presentation yeah. is what you're talking uh, about. They really stressed both the individualization that would be going on and like the customization that you would be able to get in terms of performance. And they even they brought Ronda Rousey out, right? And they did this like spiel. This whole spiel based around how women's fight gear wasn't supporting the, the, the athletes enough and that Reebok really wanted to get in here and revolutionize things so that the female fighters would have quality workout gear. And now it seems like the exact opposite of what they said is playing out in front of us in the uh, in the octagon. And and I mean, I guess if you came to the to the designing of performance gear for mixed martial arts maybe without a lot of experience in that and having to do it super quickly there would be like 150 ways that that could go wrong and one of those ways i think is designing uh a woman's top that would be too loose and then you get into a fight against someone like joanne calderwood who's gonna throw a ton of kicks at your upper torso area sometimes in a downward chopping motion uh, and she's going to pull your shirt down for, for lack of a better term, well, lack, and, of, lack of a more scientific way to say that. And it's not just like, oh, this is potentially embarrassing for her or, you know, it's a wardrobe malfunction, he, he, he kind of thing. Like if you're in a fight with somebody and you start getting preoccupied with whether your clothes are being pulled off, that might steal your focus a little bit at crucial times. Not to say that like this fight would have had a different outcome or even look significantly differently if Valerie Turno had been able just to wear whatever she normally wears in the gym. But this stuff sure didn't help anything. No, and I think, to her credit, I hope that I'm not, I don't want to speak for her and I don't want to, like, impose a feeling on Valerie Letourneau that she didn't have. But, like, as I was watching it, she looked super fucking pissed. Like, she had a look on her face like, I can't believe I have to wear this thing. That does not work. (laughs) Uh, Which... Uh, you're right. It probably didn't affect the outcome of the fight. That seemed like Calderwood was going to take that thing from the moment she scored in the first round with that uh, crazy spinning back fist uh, and maybe should have won the fight the first time. Uh, but at the same time, you're right. Like it, it, if you're going out there and presenting yourself not only as the leader in this sport in the entire world, but also as the clothing company that's going to come in and make everything so great that everyone should forget about the financial penalty that that is being wreaked upon them because of your involvement in the sport like i don't know man maybe try to do a good job yeah is just see if you can think. make this stuff work next question about the same fight comes from cameron chapman who writes so i went back and rewatched jojo versus laterno in light of jojo's comments about fighter pay i wanted to see what she had to go through to try to earn the bonus money so that she can stay at tristar gym in an environment that allows her to be at her best and now the whole thing has me feeling feelings, you guys. Because JoJo goes out there and gives the best performance of her UFC career and is still broke as hell. And now can't train where she needs to. And then in all caps he writes, and that isn't even the worst part. The worst part is that Letourneau goes out there and gets her whole shit broke and is even poorer! Exclamation point, and no one is there to help her in that fight. Not the ref, not her own corner, throwing in the towel, not the UFC who pays these fighters less than living wage uh, to get beat on. And maybe the UFC earned $158 million in 2015 and is worth $4 billion, question mark. Since the situation is not likely to improve unless some benevolent billionaire takes over to go full Karl Marx on the situation, can we crowdfund $4 billion and insert the CME podcast uh, as the ones to right these wrongs? Discutez, s'il vous plaît. You know, if we're going to go ahead and crowdfund $4 billion so that the CME can buy the UFC, why don't we just crowdfund like 4.5 billion just just to sweeten the pot for you and me for our trouble? Let's let's just crowdfund a couple hundred bucks so you and me can have a nice weekend. 
about that? I, I would assume for that. separately. Yes, we would, because you have hand, foot, and mouth disease. Yeah. We would. We we will require separate quarters. Um, this is a good point, though, especially because he's right that Joanne Calderwood looked better than she ever has since coming to the UFC. Yeah, multiple things I think going her way in this fight. Not only the lack of, uh, uh, you know, I mean, fighting at her natural weight class. Let's just say the first uh, women's flyweight fight in UFC history, and probably training a TriStar, and she was getting good corner advice too. So like, it seemed like all around improvement for her. Well, and it seemed like for her, especially the training camp was going to be a crucial element because you remember what happened to her uh, when she lost really that quick arm bar and then said afterwards that basically she had had a lot of personal trouble and trouble in her camp that with basically like a boyfriend or ex-boyfriend who was also her trainer and was just having trouble getting good, consistent training and having good people dependable there in her corner. And so now she goes and she gets to a real gym in TriStar in Montreal Gets really good training, comes out, looks awesome. Clearly, it makes a difference. And as she said afterwards, she needed the bonus money just to be able to stay there. Now she has to go home, work a job for a little while just so she can have enough money to come back and train to fight. That is a depressing state of affairs for mixed martial arts and and the UFC in general. Yeah, it's depressing. uh, And as Cameron Chapman notes, it is coupled with these recent reports that the UFC earned $158 million last year. Uh, and and even more recent reports that were on the verge of a of a complete sale from Zufa LLC to a conglomerate of of organizations that's going to buy the UFC for 4.2 billion. I think we'll talk about that in another listener mail question here coming up. Uh, but it's it's like unconscionable, really, to me that you would have a company that profitable and worth that much money, where your athletes who are the product would be receiving such a small cut of the actual uh, profits. And not only that, like it's a situation that actively works against your product. Right. Like, it encourages the product to be shittier. And I think Joanne Calderwood is the perfect example of that. If she earns the kind of money that she should be making at, as a professional athlete, uh, she turns around and like puts that back into her craft goes to TriStar, one of the top gyms in the world, gets better training, gets better coaching, comes out in this flyweight fight against Valerie Letourneau, uh, and looks like she could be a potential contender in whatever weight class they decide to have her fight in. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's all connected to me, and it all goes back to the idea that if you're a UFC fighter, you should be paid like a professional athlete, and, and in doing so, it would cost the people who own the company more money, but would ultimately probably be recouped, I think, both in like the quality of product that you put out and I think ultimately like the respect that you would get in the sporting landscape for putting on a better product. Also, and here I'm going to sound like somebody who has clearly never been a wildly wealthy rich guy, but how much damn money do you need? Because you're already making a ton of money on this, right? Like if you pay the fighters a little bit more, which will make a huge difference to them, and you have slightly less snow to import into your driveway on Christmas in Las Vegas, that that seems to me like a reasonable trade-off. It just seems like pure greed that you wouldn't be able to up the fighter pay a little bit, that you wouldn't really notice that much. And the USC is, like we said here, seemingly a very profitable company. It's not like it's just scraping by these days. It's doing all right, and if these people need it to in order to be better, I just don't see the argument for not doing it. Uh, And I also think that you can't, the UFC will sometimes make this argument and you can't have it both ways where like, hey, people didn't buy tickets to see Joanne Calderwood. 
she's on the you know she's she's not the Conor McGregor she's not Ronda Rousey uh, so she should be happy for what she gets and at the same time she was on the main card of your Fox Sports One UFC Fight Night broadcast either she's a reason we should tune in and watch the UFC either she's an important part of the product uh, and therefore should be paid like it or she's not in which case why should we care. You can't really make the argument like, hey, everybody, get to your your television sets, buy your tickets, Joanne Calderwood's on the main card here, and then also tell us, but she doesn't deserve enough money to actually train and be a full-time professional fighter. Right, and we see that logic floated around a lot, and it really doesn't make any sense to me, or it seems like a very incomplete metric by which to try to ascribe value to, to fighters. Because, you know, maybe the main event of UFC Fight Night 89 was Stephen Thompson against Rory McDonald. But we've been taught over the last, you know, 15 years that no one, you don't buy or watch a UFC card for one fight. Like maybe you tune in and you're super excited about the main event, but you you buy it for, for the full slate of fights that, that are going to be presented on this card. And I think that, you know, even when you have a free card on Fox Sports, like you are still monetizing the whole thing. You still have four fights on your digital streaming service, which people buy from you to watch. So that means that people like Elias Theodoro and Sam Alvey uh, and Randa Marcos and Ali Bagoutinov all have value because you're monetizing them through, through fight pass. And then, you know, you've got your, you've got four fights on Fox sports two, actually four and a half fights on Fox sports two this past, this past weekend. And that means that people like Misha Sirkinov and Christoph Jocko and Joe Soto and Leandro Silva all have value because you are using them all as part of this, uh, menu of programming that you offer th- that night. And it just seems incredibly reductive to me to, to try to say that the only people that matter are the people like Stephen Thompson and Roy McDonald who get their face on the poster. It just seems like not true. Yeah. But that still is the metric that we fall back on most often in terms of trying to decide, quote unquote, who's a needle mover. All right, well, let's skip to this question from Josh Piercy, who writes, so with the UFC taking offers and potentially selling 100% of the company, what do you think of it? Would it be better for the sport being able to maybe fix some of their problems with fighters' rankings and their system in general? Or do you think it will hurt their image and take away from what they built? Uh, and as an addendum that, to that, we had Jeremy Botter from Flow Sports tweet uh, about an hour ago, right before we started recording, that uh, he he has been told that a winning bid of fourteen billion dollars was accepted by Zufa. Fourteen billion? Oh, I'm sorry, four point two billion. There we go. Fourteen. That would be a lot of. Billions. That would be a considerable jump. Uh, still a lot of money. Uh, and the 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 lead group was uh, WME, IMG, Dalian, Wanda, the Craft Group, and Tencent Holdings. Uh, so it appears Jeremy Botter has been kind of on the on the forefront of this story. Uh, the, the, the whole time that it's been being reported. So at this point, I guess we have no reason not to believe that a sale of the entire UFC is, is imminent. Yeah, it seems that way from everything we've heard. As for what do we think and is it going to change things for the better, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, somehow I don't feel like the conglomerate of big money investors who are thinking about paying over $4 billion to buy the UFC are going to make it their first order of business to up all the pay of the fighters they already have under contract. Right. Whoever is buying this thing is assumedly doing it uh, because of the Zufa LLC profit margin, and you would think because of uh, future profit margins. Like You would think that that they're extending that on into the future and, and trying to figure out how in the world they can recoup $4.2 billion as a, as a – 
a sale price, it's not like they're going to come in and, and immediately slash their own, their own takings from the profits, right? They're, they want to, at the very least, I would think, continue on with the way things have been, been run. That would be my assumption. And I think that like when you get a conglomerate of businesses like this, where there's four or five investors all coming together and not necessarily coming in to buy the the company because of at least in part an initial love of the sport which i think you have to credit the you know frank and lorenzo fertita and dana white for buying the ufc early on at least in part because they were actually interested in mixed martial arts this to me would signal a, a far more like business-minded venture and a far more uh like dollars and cents oriented decision by this group of enormous companies that is allegedly going to reportedly buy the UFC. Uh, so I wouldn't expect much to change financially, at well, least not for the better. We'll have to, and it's way too early to say anyway, maybe it'll be the greatest thing of all time for all we know. Well, and from all the reports, especially, you know, Jeremy Botter's been on top of this one. Uh, and over and over again, the report is that Dana White's not going anywhere that he's going to basically probably sell his ownership stake, uh, along with the Fertitas, but then be offered perhaps a lower owner or a, a smaller ownership stake in the new company to stay on. And if he stays on, you got to think that it's not going to be so that they can completely reverse course and go in a completely different direction. I mean, he's still going to be there yelling at the dummies and the goofs uh, about why the UFC is the greatest and they pay their fighters plenty. Thank you very much. So yeah, I wouldn't expect any dramatic changes there. Um, but you know, it's hard not to worry a little bit about the long-term future, right? When you get the, the people who built it up and, you know, they would have us believe saved it from certain demise, at least you got the sense that they had a really personal interest in it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's, probably, it's probably true to say that the Fertitas and Dana White bought the UFC, at least originally, because they legitimately enjoyed the sport. Like, they got hooked on the sport uh, and decided to to buy the UFC. I think that there was a big part of it that was a business investment. I think they saw uh, an amazing product that they thought that they could really monetize and and really double and triple and and even bigger than that, you know, in value. And I think that they realized that they were getting into a completely unregulated industry where no one would really be keeping a very close watch on their business practices and what they did. Uh, but part of it was because they liked the sport. I don't think you can deny that. And God knows we criticized the UFC ownership group uh, for all of the things that I think they deserve to be criticized for. But at the same time, I think you have to give them the credit that they deserve for, uh, you know, potentially saving the sport from disaster. Because when they bought in, it was certainly at an all-time low. Well, then you get to the question, and I'm not sure. I think you can make a case either way. But what would it do, you know, positive or negative to have people who are involved because they see it as a good business venture and not because they have an overriding passion for the sport. Because at times, as we've said before, Dana White, especially a guy with the virtues of his faults, a very passionate guy about the things he believes in uh, and takes a lot of the, the running of the UFC very personal, which sometimes causes him to just blow up and freak out uh, instead of handling it a little bit more like a businessman, uh, but also has caused him to you know put a whole lot of effort into getting this thing to where it is. And you can't you can't take that away from the UFC ownership that they did get this thing to where it is. It's a, it's a much bigger sport now because of everything that they did. Um, I don't know exactly how all the, the ripples in the pond will shake out uh, two or three years down the road for, as a result of this. Yeah, I would, ultimately it'll obviously be a huge deal. I think in the very, very short term, my personal uh, 
perception is that we should expect almost no changes on the front end. Business as usual. Yeah, and how yes, exactly. Just like Strike Force. Hashtag business as usual of how the UFC runs. Uh William Morris, which is the WME in in that uh, uh group of businesses, has repped the UFC and Dana White for a while. So they're clearly familiar with As well as Ronda Rousey too. The, right? the product that they're getting into. I would think that this kind of uh you know partnership between several different groups uh faceless groups i think you could say probably indicates that that dana white will stay on at least for the for the time being and i I would anticipate you just wouldn't see that many changes in the actual product at least in the short term all right let's do this one more and then we got to move on from mark delu who writes what the fuck how good was that bossy o'connell fight nothing more to say here just discourse the shit out of that epic slobber slobber knocker please and thank you uh, so yeah, Steve Bossy or Steve Bosset. Yeah, I think they, it's Bosset now. Bosset, as they said on the on the broadcast, and Sean O'Connell had an epic light heavyweight fight at UFC Fight Night '89, and holy cow, out there in listener land, if you needed a reason to drop ten bucks on Sean O'Connell's really long uh, sci-fi fantasy novel, which is called Hellbound Heaven Sent, I believe at this point it was called To Light Us to Guard Us when when yes. we announced a failed attempt to do a book club on it. Uh, so far, I might say. Yeah. But it's not failed. It's just on hold. Yeah. Paused. It's on pause. Uh, man, go buy Sean O'Connell's book, people. You want to talk about a crowd source, crowdfunding effort? Give this man some of your hard-earned money. He's out there, just going to town with Steve Bosset out the, there during this fight. You know, Danny Downs and I had a, a conversation about this one on our trading shots column this week, where basically he was making the argument. Everybody freaked out about that fight when really it was kind of sloppy and not a lot of defense and just kind of a a bar fight at 3 a.m. basically. And he much preferred the Rory McDonald Wonder Man fight uh, for its tactical brilliance. And at the same time, that's that might be kind of an extreme example, but okay. Yeah. At the same time, I, I don't know how you can not be pulled in by a fight like this where it just it's unbelievable how much punishment each guy can take and keep giving right back all the way to the end. Uh, and it might be, it sometimes brings out some more of our, uh, the Just Bleed fan in a lot of us, I think. But I I don't see a problem with admitting that that is still part of the appeal of the sport. Yeah, I think if you're going to be a mixed martial arts fan, you kind of have to enjoy both things. Uh, and again, I think it's okay to enjoy both things. I think we would be denying what this sport actually is and and maybe even ultimately doing a disservice to the athletes if we tried to pretend that at times it wasn't a violent blood sport and that at times it wasn't dangerous and at times wasn't the kind of sport uh, that might end up causing some lasting damage to the competitors who go out there uh, and actually fight each other stripped to the waist uh, in this cage. I think that all of that stuff is stuff that we have to admit and stuff that uh, if you watch the sport a lot, I think you have to come to terms with the fact that you enjoy that, that you can enjoy that kind of contest. And, and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that. I think that that if you're going to be a hardcore fan of this sport, though, you also have to enjoy the other side of it, uh, which might be a Stephen Thompson, Rory McDonald style fight. Although uh, we're going to talk about that fight later, so I don't want to totally tip tip our hand here, but I don't know that that was was the most exciting thing in the world to watch, but like you, you got to be able to enjoy, for example, a chess match on the ground, like a technical battle on the ground. You don't have to be able to enjoy shit. Which you can I, enjoy whatever you want. I 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying, dumbass. <laughs> like, pay the fuck attention to what I'm talking. Uh, okay, you fine. have to keep, like if you're going to be a hardcore fan of this sport, you pretty much have to like both things. Or no, else, you don't. I don't know what you're doing here. Yeah, no, I think you could be a hardcore fan of this sport and pick and choose what you want to like there. Uh, I would I would wonder sometimes what it says about you if you're just completely shut off to some elements uh, and only appreciate other elements. Um, but I don't know. I don't. I don't think. I think that one of the things I like about mixed martial arts is kind of what you alluded to there, the the breadth of the possible performances that we'll see. Right. Some appeal to some people, some appeal to other people. Uh, I think that's totally fine. And I think that while I can understand how somebody can watch, especially I think the more you know about martial arts, the more you might watch a fight like Sean O'Connell and Steve Bosset, and just want to scream, get your damn hands up, move sure. your feet. That, sure. b- but I also think that we talk sometimes about how the the reason the knockouts and stuff have, have appealed to the casual fans more than some of the finer grappling elements is because everybody can look at that and know how to make sense of it. Uh, and so I think that there's absolutely, before you knew much about mixed martial arts, I think you've probably got sucked in by those kinds of fights, and then you learned. Then you, you, you paid more attention and it came to you later and you appreciated the other stuff later on. So I, I got no problem with people who, who want to get out there and just bleed. Maybe two years down the line, they're buying Demian Maya's jujitsu for MMA on VHS. Sure. Yeah. No, I have no problem with that. I think that's, you took a very, uh, literal definition of what I was saying there. Uh, but I just, <laughs> sorry think, for interpreting the words as they came out of l- your mouth. Let me slightly rephrase there. Uh, my opinion would be that people who come to the sport only to see blood and guts often leave disappointed because that's not the only thing that the sport is. There's a lot more of that. And in fact, if you started watching the sport really early on, yeah, I suppose you got Harold Howard and, uh, you got like Brian Johnston or whatever early Does on out there. The name Tank faces. Abbott ring, ring Tank a bell? Abbott. Uh, but if you were going to be into the UFC, you kind of had to like what Hoist Gracie and like Dan Severn and later on, a little bit later on, like Mark Coleman were doing or else there just wasn't a lot there for you. Or like if you, you were... came to watch Blood and Guts, you probably walked away being like, huh, that was weird. That one dude that fought like a spider won the tournament. Or you were one of those dudes who was at the UFC and left right after Tank Abbott versus Chemo or whatever it was and walked right past Chad Dundas who was getting himself psyched for Chuck Liddell versus Randy Couture. Getting in a lather. With my betting slip in my hand, in my fist. Just already th- thinking in my mind how I was going to go cash that in. And I did. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's Listener Mail. If you have questions, comments, or concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link at the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Uh, while you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, which comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from Tuesday through Friday when we're not recording the podcast this week, I would say you might have a good chance of there being some news since the rumors of this UFC sale are starting to pick up, even though we don't expect them to be finalized for a while. You never know. Uh, it's humorous. It's short. We think you'll like it. If you don't, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
guess you gotta say that 39-year-old Fedor Emelianenko and 36-year-old Fabio Maldonado went out there on what was Friday afternoon in the one true time zone and gave it their best shot. Uh, these two guys turned in what I think you can accurately describe as a 15-minute brawl, uh, though at times it looked more like a heavyweight fight that you might see at the Missoula County Fairgrounds than one that you would expect to see uh, at the upper echelon of mixed martial arts. Uh, Fedor Emelianenko ultimately emerged with a majority decision. Uh, what was your take here? Were you depressed by this, or were, were you able to take it in stride? It's difficult to for me to talk about just this fight and not talk about the event itself. Did okay. you watch the event? I did not spend all day watching EFN, though I took in what you might call the highlights and saw everyone's uh, reactions you, on, on social media. Did you take take it in the highlights afterwards? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I did. Okay. So um, I was familiar with the fact that there was going to be a giant spider or whatever. Okay. I was going to go there. I was going to mention giant spider with a woman hanging from inside the spider. This was a, this was a goddamn show, man. You can't take that away from these people, especially when you start to think about it in terms of like, it's one thing to be sitting around with your friends who run a mixed martial arts promotion in St. Petersburg, Russia and say, you know what would be cool is if we had an orchestra on stage and a giant spider hanging down from the ceiling, and then a person was inside the spider singing somebody's entrance music, and everybody would agree, yeah, that would be cool. It's another thing to follow that plan through, to like put it in the budget, to find out where you get the giant spider made, to rehearse that stuff, to go out there and do the damn giant spider thing. Those are people who are really paying attention to showmanship, and I appreciate that. I also have to give a shout out to whoever the lone commentator was. And that first of all, it's a sweet move to have the English commentary just be one guy sitting there sounding like a madman talking to himself. And it is awesome. And there's nobody to rein him in. Right. Oh, I assumed that was Fedor's cousin because of how he, he announced the, the main event. If he's Fedor's cousin, he might not want to show up to the next family reunion because he was not terribly kind to Fedor. I mean, at the end of the fight where Fedor's standing there awaiting the decision and he's saying, he has nothing to be proud about. And then <laughs> at one point, you know, uh, I, I don't know if it was before the decision was announced but, or after, um, but he kind of took it as, took it for granted that Fedor does not deserve this, this decision, but he is going to get this decision. And then he said, do you really think that Fedor won that fight? Do you really? I do not. And I, that's when I was like, okay, this guy is the greatest commentator ever. Also, when he had an actress on who I did not know, and he asked her a bunch of weird questions, including, are you going to the after party? And what do you think of the Russian soul? Um, all right, you got me, man. You got me, lone announcer. Uh, but then, okay, the, the actual Fedor-Fabio Maldonado fight... I got to say one round of that was super, super fun and also a little sad because it looked like Fedor still goes out there and he fights like he's still Fedor. You know, he still does exactly. He's still trying to be Fedor. Yeah. And he still thinks being Fedor is going to work. Yeah, because it worked for so long. And he still fights exactly like it's pride in 2004 where he is just throwing the what, what Ben Goldstein used to refer to as the overhand murder balls and waiting for you to fall down on the canvas and not really even seeming too worried that you're going to punch him back. And it seems like, 
I don't know if Fedor himself has gotten older. Well, I do know that Fedor has gotten older. He has indeed. He's three months out from his 40th birthday. And I don't know if it's that or it also seems like, you know, the game done changed in the a decade or so since Fedor was at his height. So maybe a combination of those reasons, that stuff just doesn't get it done anymore. And that's how you end up seeing Fedor spend a lot of what he has in the, the first few minutes and then get face planted and barely survive the first round. Yeah, it's interesting that he is still out there trying to do that. And he really does pull every one of those punches out of his back pocket. Like he is slipping those out of the back of his trunks that say the last emperor across them in the flash dance writing. And he is just winging haymakers. And I would have thought that it had become apparent that that style wasn't the best in about 2011 when he had lost back-to-back fights to Fabricio Vertum and, and uh, Bigfoot Silva, and then Strike Force gave him the fight against Dan Henderson, a, a, a light heavyweight and, and uh, you know, an Olympic wrestler, but a guy who had appeared sort of one-dimensional in his MMA approach for a long time. And I thought to myself, well, the only way that Fedor could lose this fight is if he sprints out of his corner and runs right into the teeth of Dan Henderson's offense and tries to throw those big haymakers. And that was exactly what he did. And then Dan Henderson knocked him out in the first round. Uh, so it's interesting to see Fedor come out and still go about things in the exact same way as that, like you said, he was doing in 2004. Uh, and I don't know, maybe if it's he thinks he's out there fighting guys like Fabio Maldonado and Satoshi Ishii, that, that, that that's going to work. Uh, that's the plan. That's why they have, they signed those guys. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with maybe he can't take the, the same kind of punishment that he used to be able to take as, you know, as guys start getting up there in years, it seems like one of the things that goes is your ability to take a punch. So maybe in the olden times, Fabio Maldonado hits him with, with that counter shot. Maybe he doesn't get dropped. Yeah. Well, and clearly he still has the heart, you know, he, he still, is that he thinks he's that same guy inside because, you know, you, you watch him, he gets dropped there, looks like it's going to be over any second, and he does manage to battle back in there. And I think a lot of people got caught up on the decision, which way the decision should have gone. You yeah, know? I, watched, I, I watched it this morning over again, and I have to say I was, didn't come out of it as mad about the decision as it seemed like people were online because, I mean, I think clearly Fabio Bonaldo, Ma, Faldio, Fabio Ma, Ma, Maldonado, Nailed it. Fabio. Yeah, Fabio. Fabio Ruggiero Maldonado. Okay. Uh, well, he wins the first round. I think you pretty clearly say Fedor wins the second round. And then the third round is, eh, kind of close. But Fabio wins the first round 10-8 at sure, least. Sure, you could say 10-8 if you wanted to. Now, see, that's why I think you could, you, the easiest case to make here is that it should have been a draw. Yeah, I mean, And that's, I would have had no problem with a draw. The Where I think you get into weird shenanigans is not just Fedor winning the decision because, okay, he wins a home down decision in Russia. Big surprise there. Whatever. Uh, and it's not an outright robbery. We've definitely seen worse decisions in MMA. I mean, we've seen worse decisions in MMA this year, probably. So not a huge deal. But then I think when, first of all, sweet move by Fabio Maldonado's people to immediately talk about how they want to appeal uh, that decision, which... You gotta, first of all, you gotta go ask Fedor's cousin, who's sitting in the announce booth. <laughs> and see, that's, that's where it gets weird. <laughs> is you, when you appeal that decision to like the Russian MMA union, uh, and it's Fedor's people that you're talking to. And you're asking them to basically admit that they screwed you. 
And surprise, they don't seem eager to do that. And so I guess it just the whole thing comes out where it feels a little bit dirtier. It feels not as much of a just kind of pure fun nostalgic pleasure as I was hoping it would be to watch Fedor fight Fabio Maldonado in a circular cage that the announcer insists on calling an octagon on Friday afternoon in the one-room time zone. I, I was hoping it was just, okay, it, we're just going to have some stupid fun here. I don't really care that much about Fedor proving anything, and clearly I don't think he cares that much about it either. He's out there to do it, get a paycheck. I'm here to watch it because fuck it's Fedor. Of course yeah. I'm going to watch it. And then afterwards when I have to think about the possibility of Russian corruption at work here, damn it, now I can't really enjoy it the same way I did. What if it turned out that all of those theatrics with the giant spider and the ladies dancing with swords and whatnot – what if that all came like out of a out of Fedor Emelianenko's sketchbook? What if they came to his house to see what he wanted to do for the show, and he just like handed them a sketchbook and was like, "It is all in there." Yeah, and then they opened it. And it's like a lady hanging from a giant spider. Just bring this dream to life. Are you pro or con? I mean, I can't even believe that I'm about to put voice to this, but <laughs> Fedor coming to the UFC, like, because those reports are out there again. At this point, it seems like. In classic combat sports fashion, Fedor Emelianenko would arrive in the octagon just in time to get his ass handed to him by some mid-level UFC heavyweights. Uh, but it might be fun. Who knows? Yeah. See, I saw people afterwards debating this, like, did this prove that Fedor does not belong in the UFC or that he's no longer good enough for the UFC? And first of all, I think we have to take a look around at what's happened over the last couple of years and admit Good enough for the UFC is not a real thing anymore. Sure. Especially they, not at heavyweight. Yeah. <laughs> Especially not at heavyweight. It was a thing, or at least we believed it was a thing for a time. The UFC seemed to really push it that it was a thing. These days, a lot of people have kind of given up the ghost on that one. And if you can put some asses in seats, we don't care that much how good you are. So let's throw that one just right out the window. And then I guess you get to the thing of like, should Fedor just keep fighting at this point? Like, would it be better if Fedor just went home and stopped? And yes, obviously it would be better for him. Uh, he's one of those guys where you wish somebody would push him into retirement. But if he's not going to do that, and if he's just going to fight the kinds of dudes that the UFC had around for this exact sort of purpose in the first place, only he's going to wait until after they've been released from the UFC to do it, then shit, I guess he might as well do it in the UFC, right? What's what's the big difference? At least if you did it in the UFC and you had to appeal some weird decision uh, that he got over you, you might stand a chance of being heard by somebody who you know wasn't in Fedor's locker room congratulating him right afterwards. It seems like a few less giant spiders and song and dance numbers, you might be able to give Fedor Emelianenko some kind of lifestyle stipend. So that he could just sit there with his cousin and do commentary instead yeah, of... But uh, you don't want to lose those spiders, man. That's true. That is half the show. All right, Ben. Well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two this week. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, did you see what happened to friend of the podcast? Or at least a dude that the podcast likes from afar. Tam Dan McCrory, the barn I cat. I did. And in fact, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? concerns the knockout of Tamden McCrory as well. Okay. So we'll, we'll team up on this. Mine is not so much about the knockout, which made me sad. I'll admit that because I like Tamden McCrory and I want to see him do well and I certainly don't want to see him hurt, which seemed like he, he was obviously there. But then I get on the Twitter a little bit after that and I see this tweet from Tamden McCrory that reads, quote, 
Today is the worst day of my life. Thank <laughs> oh my you all for being a part of it. Wow. Are you fucking kidding dark, me? Dude. You've got to go and break my damn heart, Barncat? Yeah, it'll keep your head up, man. It's, it can't be the worst day of your life. It That's... just feels that way right now. And I, I feel like I'm not sure how to take the thank you all for being a part of it kind of thing. That doesn't feel entirely sincere. Are you fucking kidding me? Now I'm sad. That's fucking dark, man. Yeah. Wow. Well, Ben, I, I, I remember when the UFC signed Christoph Jotko back in 2013. It was when the international expansion efforts were really getting fully underway. And I read some stuff online by people who know, obviously, a lot more about European MMA than I do. And they were like, this Christoph Jotko dude is somebody that you need to watch. Because at the time, he was pretty young and undefeated. Uh, and he was one of those dudes that kind of got buried in the... Uh, in the UFC's like population explosion now that they have damn near 500 guys under contract. But I think that this Tam Dan McCrory fight, McCrory is obviously his highest profile win yet to date. He improved to 18 and one. He's just 26 years old. Still might, it might go down as the moment that Christoph Jocko kind of put himself on the map as an up and comer at middleweight. But I also have to say, are you fucking kidding me? Because after watching it, it appears that Jocko has a little bit of that Dan Henderson, I don't give a shit about your well-being or your future ability to earn a living thing like going on with him because, man, he punches Tandon McCrory and Tandon McCrory goes down like a mummy that tripped over something. And from there, Jotko is just like, I'm going to go ahead and drop a couple super hard hammer fists right on your obviously already knocked out face. And it's like, it's just brutal, man. Are you fucking kidding me? Did you really need to do that, Christoph Jocko? Fucking kidding me, Christoph Jocko? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, in the co-main event at UFC Fight Night 89, Donald Cerrone, in his new life as a welterweight, beat the ever-loving shit out of Patrick Cote. And it was just a masterful performance from Donald Cerrone from the start. He spends the first round taking Cote down, taking his back, nearly choking him. And after that, he's just jacking him up with left hooks until, until Cote, who, by the way, has kind of a famously tough chin, is so woozy that he just basically falls down and cannot stop Donald Cerrone from collapsing into full mount, where he jacks him with right hands to the face until Eve Levine feels like Patrick Cote has had all childhood memories wiped from his brain, and now he'll go ahead and stop it. You think it was a running man type scenario? In what way? Isn't that the the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where he can't remember? Oh no, Total Recall! Because <laughs> that has a joke about memory in the title. That's why it was... Yeah, that was that yeah. One, that one. I don't, so I don't know how you mess those those up, but wipe his memories. Yep, Aaron, total recall. That's the plot of the movie. Well, you know, Ben, the thing about Donald Cerrone is he's one of these guys where, on one hand, you know exactly what you're going to get from him in every single fight, and on the other hand, you don't just don't have a clue. He has talked a lot about how he is a slow starter, uh, and he is always seems to be his own worst critic. 
Uh, but at the same time, it, it seems like he has started to uh, try to take steps to to improve on those things that he sees as his faults. And every now and then you get a performance like this against uh, Patrick Cote, where he comes out there and looks just phenomenal for damn near three full rounds before he finally gets the TKO finish. And Patrick Cote is 36 years old and, and it was probably, you know, not a guy that we thought was about to win the welterweight title or anything like that. But at the same time, a dude who was six and one, uh, all in the UFC in his last seven fights. And the only loss during that stretch was in September of 2014 when he lost to the wonder man, Stephen Thompson, who we think at this point is probably your consensus number one contender. Uh, in that weight class. So yeah, man, I don't know how you don't come away with this saying that's just a hell of a win for the Cowboy. Yeah. And I think the thing we have to talk about is obviously it's a hell of a win for the Cowboy and there's no disputing that. Uh, and he does his usual Cowboy thing where afterwards he'll say, okay, I'll fight whoever, lightweight, welterweight, money weight, don't matter. UFC 200 is next month. Maybe I can get on that. Um, classic Cowboy Cerrone stuff. And then in the press conference, when he's kind of informed and, and asked about how he's now won a record 17 performance fight night bonuses in the UFC, and he says, oh, that's that's nice, but according to my pay, I don't mean shit to the UFC. Uh, and says that he needs to talk to Dana White about getting his money up, which he has a point when you think about it, because the last time he fought somewhere where he had a disclosed payout was against Rafael Dos Anjos, that lightweight title fight. You know what he made to show in that one? The disclosed not. pay? I do not. 79 grand. And that's Donald Cerrone, who has been in the UFC for five years and consistently one of the most exciting, guaranteed, fun fight draws that the UFC has. Right. And is another guy that you can't really fall back on the metric of whether or not he's going to, you know, sell 500,000 pay per view buys as the main event of. of of some, you know, for pay show like Donald Cerrone should be worth a lot of money to the UFC because if you need him in December, he'll show up and fight for the title. If you need him in February, he will show up and main event a show against Alex, Alex Oliveira in Pittsburgh. If you need him in June, he will show up and fight Patrick Cote in Ottawa because he just does not give a fuck. And he will do that over and over again. And in so doing, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast has made himself like one of the more, like, I don't know if you could say he has the following of somebody who is going to sell uh, 500,000 pay-per-views, but he's certainly one of the more well-liked and popular undercard fighters in the UFC. So I don't know that you can really just, like, judge his ability to draw on, on like, the fact that he's not really a, a main event draw. Like, I think that Don Cerrone is one of these guys who's kind of like the classic 2016 UFC fighter, where it's like, he should be worth a lot to the company because they do 45 shows and they always need someone to fight on a moment's notice against anyone in the world, and that guy is Don Cerrone. Yeah, plus, you know, I did a, a video about this earlier talking about, you know, all the reasons why he, he deserves it and why the UFC should want to incentivize other fighters to be like Donald Cerrone because if you think about somebody like try to name how many fighters you can name who are like Donald Cerrone where when you see him on a card you don't really care that much who he's fighting against you think okay guaranteed good time is about to happen and not in the sloppy sense either not in the just like okay here's a guy who will just go out there run face first into somebody's punches and throw wild haymakers hoping to get a bonus at the end of the night like an actual good fighter all the way around striking on the ground can do it all 
and always gives you a show and wants to fight as much as he possibly can. Like there's just if you if you ask the UFC to make somebody who they could clone and have him fight on every single fight card, they would want a guy like Donald Cerrone. Yeah, I and mean, you know for him to come out and and speak out against fighter pay is, makes me think that like some stuff is starting to pick up momentum and maybe it's just because you had Joanne Calderwood and Donald Cerrone this weekend both kind of uh, voice their qualms with their pay. Uh, and Cerrone is a guy who early on had said that he was going to lose a, a lot of money because of the Reebok deal because he made so much money in sponsorships. But he, he was kind of Donald Cerrone about it at the time, if I remember correctly. Yeah. He was kind of like, Oh, hell man, I'm going to lose him out a lot of money, but whatever, you know, like yes. he was going to do it anyway. Uh, so it does feel like there's some momentum now, maybe starting to build around this fighter pay issue. But I also wonder, like, if Donald Cerrone is just going to say yes every time the UFC calls him to have a fight every four months, like what incentive do they have to give him a raise? It seemed like he might have to say no a time or two before they're like, oh, we actually probably should be paying the cowboy twice as much money as we are. And we've all been around the company a long time. We we know that it, they're not apt to think that. Yeah, maybe his best hope is that they do need Donald Cerrone as a late replacement uh, either on UFC 200 or elsewhere. And especially now that he can fight at welterweight and lightweight, he gives you a lot of options that there's a lot of different uh, holes in a, in a fight card that a guy like Donald Cerrone could plug right now. So, And you could not imagine really a better replacement if you need to hold a fight together and make it still seem awesome. It doesn't matter who the other guy is. Plug Donald Cerrone in there, you got yourself a fight. Yeah. Are you buying Donald Cerrone being better at welterweight or, you know, after back-to-back -back wins, Alex Oliveira and Patrick Cote both by stoppage? I don't know if the sample size is big enough just sure. yet for us to know exactly. But I think that for Donald Cerrone, and, I, and I'd heard Greg Jackson say this about him before, that a to the extent that he had any problems at all as a fighter, they were mostly mental. They were not terribly physical. Right. Like he, I remember Greg Jackson saying once, and he was talking about Leonard Garcia, who long time good friend of Donald Cerrone's and he was saying how Leonard had to learn a little more discipline in the gym because he's hanging out with Donald Cerrone and he thought he could train like Donald Cerrone, which was to just kind of show up when you felt like it, train, train hard when you were there, but then, you know, maybe you take off a, a, a week or two to go wakeboarding or whatever. Uh, and he was like, Donald Cerrone could do that because it doesn't matter what you do. Like you take Donald Cerrone skeet shooting and he's going to be the best skeet shooter you ever saw. And you know, you take him golfing, you give him a, a little time to practice on the driving range. Pretty soon he's going to be the best golfer, you know, like he's just that kind of a guy. And the only thing holding him back at times, and he's talked about this a little bit was, you know, getting the mental game right. Uh, and he seemed to do some new tricks for this one. Uh, they talked about him coming to the cage way early in advance of this one, going through a walkthrough early that afternoon, uh, and kind of fine tuning his mental game. And I don't know, man, you know, if he, if he gets that part of it down, Donald's Roney could be, could be somebody to pay attention to at welterweight. Suddenly that welterweight division has a lot of really interesting matchups you could make. It sure does. And you know, it's funny that a win like this over Patrick Cote, is the kind of thing that makes you think twice about Donald Cerrone because we saw him lose to Rafael Dos Anjos uh, last December, and that was his second loss to Dos Anjos, and at the time we were kind of like, okay, well, it's clear that Donald Cerrone is always going to be a popular and exciting guy in the UFC, but it kind of feels like we've seen his high watermark. Like, he's probably not going to be the champion. Now he wins these back-to-back -back fights at welterweight, including this really awesome performance against Patrick Cote, 
and you just like kind of scroll back through his fight career and you're like, well, holy shit, Donald Cerrone is actually really, really good at this. Like, uh, his last two losses are both against the current champion at lightweight, Dos Anjos. Prior to that, his only, his loss was to Anthony Pettis and, and before that, Nate Diaz. And you're all the way back in December of 2011. Uh, and those are, are all dudes who have either been the champion or are doing pretty well for themselves at the moment in the UFC landscape. So it's possible that, uh, at least I maybe fell victim to the what have you done for me lately syndrome after the second loss to Dos Anjos, thinking that that Cerrone probably wasn't going to be uh, a huge part of the title picture moving forward. It feels like these last two wins, uh, he's kind of reinvented himself a little bit, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with him at welterweight, perhaps, moving forward. Uh because there's certainly kind of an interesting title picture going on there. And that is what we are going to talk about in round number three, which starts right now. Ben, as we alluded to earlier in the show, I'm not sure that anyone is going to be talking about Stephen Wonderboy Thompson's win over Rory McDonald years from now uh, as one of those fights that that we keep going back to again and again. But it was nonetheless a huge uh, landmark moment in the career of Wonderboy Thompson. We think he comes out of this uh, as the number one contender at welterweight, probably the guy who is waiting for Robbie Lawler and Tyron Woodley to finish their business. And frankly, a dude who at, I think, 33 years of age just looks like a better and better mixed martial arts fighter every time we see him. Um, I think it, we probably are both in agreement that a fight between Wonderboy Thompson and Robbie Lawler would be straight up madness. Uh and I don't know, man, you think that this is a guy who could win the UFC welterweight title for karate? First of all, Wonder Man. One, the Wonder Man, yes. I, I think we made Bricklayer happen. We can make Wonder Man happen. And God knows, I feel like an idiot calling a 33-year-old man Wonder Boy. It's just, I feel like a damn fool, Chad. I won't do it anymore. No, I'm right there with you. Now... I think one of the things I, I came away thinking about this, for one thing, and I, and I mentioned this in a column afterwards, was it's kind of telling that Stephen Thompson immediately afterward when asked what's next for him, and he was just like, title belt, Robbie Lawler. Oh, shit, wait, I mean, I mean, what I mean is the, I want the winner of Robbie Lawler versus Tyron Woodley. And it's like, if, even though I think everybody acknowledges Tyron Woodley, good fighter, can do a lot of things well, would not be at all out of the realm of possibility for him to beat Robbie Lawler and become UFC welterweight champion. And it just doesn't seem like anybody really wants that to happen because Robbie Lawler is so much a damn fun to have as the UFC welterweight champion. And when you start making these fantasy matchups, whether it's with Demian Maya or Steven Thompson, it's Robbie Lawler that you want on the other side of those fantasy matchups. Just He's just so much fun to watch. But I do wonder how his style would play against Stephen Thompson, especially after seeing Stephen Thompson here against McDonald, because he was just not going to let him get inside that kicking range without paying a heavy price for it. And even then, when he did get in there, you only got a split second to do something with it, and Thompson's gone. And then you have to start all over. And it's like, 
You can tell McDonald knew that that was going to be a problem. Otherwise, you don't come out with a game plan that is heavily dependent on Imanari rolls into leg lock attempts, which you almost got him with the first one, man. Genuinely surprised him with the first one. The second and third one, like, yeah, the, the jig is kind of up by that point. You yeah, know? when you get to that, to the third, like, rolling takedown attempt, that's when I think the people at home start to be like, oh, uh-oh, like... That he's not just on a lark with this rolling takedown <laughs> thing. Like he's this is he's something serious he was going like, to He's going to he's going to keep doing this, and that makes me wonder what Plan B is. Plan B uh, apparently is covering up your face and running forward. Because uh, he just kind of got frustrated, wanted to get in there close enough to hit Stephen Thompson, and so he would just kind of cover up with his forearms and try to bull his way forward. He's a hard guy to cut off the cage against. He's a hard guy to close that distance against, and. Thompson made him pay when he charged in like that. Uh, and a couple times, McDonald got off some pretty good shots, and you could see that Thompson didn't care for it too much. But he is more and more, I think, uh, really a master of that range and understanding how that range plays into his style uh, and just not letting guys even get to the point when they can exploit some of his weaker areas. Yeah, I mean, this was obviously kind of a frustrating performance by Rory McDonald from a spectator standpoint, but at the same time, I think it says a lot, as you were saying, about Stephen Thompson's abilities that he could totally uh, shut down a guy like Rory McDonald's offense. Because Rory McDonald is a guy who's still pretty young, but he's been around the block about half a hundred times. I mean, uh, previous to this, his only losses were to Robbie Lawler and then the early one uh, to Carlos Condit. Uh, in a fight that Rory McDonald was winning right up until the very end and a guy that we've always kind of looked at um, as a championship level fighter, even though he's a guy who's never been able to break through and win the title. So to see Stephen Thompson kind of befuddle him in the way that he did, I think is, well, I didn't think it was that fun to watch. I think it's a, is a super big compliment to Stephen Thompson that he is a guy that is that difficult to deal with. Uh, and one, you know, one, one of the reasons why I really like Stephen Thompson is that when you watch him, it's like you're, you're seeing the cutting edge of the evolution of this sport. Like you're seeing before your very eyes the evolution of mixed martial arts because in the beginning, the UFC was started kind of for the express purpose of beating up dudes like Stephen Thompson. Like that's what <laughs> yes. it was. That's why the Gracie family started the UFC was so that like people would watch Hoist Gracie choke out Jason DeLucia and stuff like that. And so to know that we have come so far that a guy like Stephen Thompson is out there with his kickboxing and his karate style and able to have so much success, I think is like kind of a cool notion that like he is now on the verge of maybe becoming welterweight champion when, when, you know, in a sport that was made up to make him look foolish. And then shouting karate back yes. immediately after winning it. What about Roy McDonald? What do you make of, of where he's at right now? Because well, we know this, he's headed into free agency. Yeah. His nose looks like it's going to continue to be a problem after yeah. uh, Robbie Lawler smashed it. Um, he said that it had been broken a few times since then. And I've talked to a lot of guys who have had problems with a, a nose that keeps breaking. And the problem that they often run into is that they go and think about surgery and the surgeons often tell them, yeah, no, I'll, I'll fix your nose. Tell me when you're done fighting. 
And then we'll fix that bad boy for you. We talked last week about how much was at stake here for both Stephen Thompson and Rory McDonald. But clearly the guy who had the most at stake was Rory McDonald because he had gone on the MMA hour and talked about how his contract negotiation with the UFC had failed and that he was pretty much dead set on testing the free agent market before this fight or after this fight. And clearly it's better for him to roll into free agency with a big win over the who was at the time the number two ranked contender at welterweight than to suffer this kind of loss. Uh, and I think he even told Brett Okamoto from ESPN the week of the fight before it happened that he thought thousands and maybe even millions of dollars were on the line for him here. So for him to have this kind of performance, which was not exciting, and a performance where he suffered a loss, and as you said, a performance where... Physically, it seemed like he's going to continue to suffer issues. And a lot of people talked before this fight about that terrible beating that he took in the Robbie Lawler fight in his last bout, wondering if Rory McDonald would be the same. And I have to admit that heading into this fight, I was kind of like, yeah, I think Rory McDonald will probably be the same guy. Afterward, I'm not 100% sure. And I think you have to give Stephen Thompson, like I said, a lot of credit for shutting him down. But to me, this was a performance that like, seems like, the first of all, the classic performance, the classic letdown performance of, a, of an MMA fighter who has a lot at stake. It seems like every time somebody gets themselves in one of these big business opportunities where it's like, all right, man, you just need to win this fight and the world is yours. It seems like they always lose. Uh, but it's, it was also a performance where I think afterwards you kind of have to really wonder – if the mileage that is already on Rory McDonald's body has really taken its toll. At 26 years old. At 26 old. years old, which, Jesus is, a, Christ, which is a scary thought. That is a scary thought. But, you know, I let's not overstate it. It's not like everybody's going to look at Rory McDonald right now and be like, well, he's shot. No sure. one wants him around sure. anymore. As we've seen with, with Bellator, if, you, if people know you, Bellator can find a use for you, and especially in that division right now, they they could use a guy like Roy McDonald. So, I would expect there to be at least you know some interest on both sides there. But yeah, it you can't say that he didn't hurt his market value with this fight. No, yeah, this this definitely didn't help. You would think that uh, him rolling into Bellator on the heels of a big win would have kind of made Rory McDonald the master of this situation. Now it might be that he just kind of has to sit back and wait for the deals to come to him. Uh, and I don't know how anyone would feel at this time if Bellator decided, if the thing that Bellator decided to do with Rory McDonald was have, have him fight Andre Korshkov right away, like they did to Benson Henderson. I feel like uh, there would be a lot of people out there in, in social media land that would look at that news and be like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Couldn't you just already envision Andre Korshkov straight up removing Roy McDonald's nose, just surgically taking it off and putting it onto somebody else's face? Yes. Just tossing it to the giant spider that's hanging over the cage yeah. and allowing him to dine on it. Just like that Nicolas Cage movie, Con Air. You see what I did? I was clearly talking about Face Off. Right. But I talked about another one to make so fun of you for you, your Running you Man it, total recall. Brought it back thing. to the Running Man thing, the start of round two. Consider here. yourself burned. Oh, okay. I was. I feel pretty scorched at this point. Do you want to do just saying stuff? Sure. Burn master. Sure. And then we we'll, we can get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, I have been keeping an eye on the internets, and while we've been sitting here enjoying each other's company to an extent, uh. 
George St. Pierre was on the MMA Fortnite today. Oh, okay. I remember him. And straight up saying he is ready to come back and get his fight on. Oh, wow. Okay. Big news. And apparently his reps are in discussions with the UFC because, as you can imagine, a lot done changed in the UFC since last we saw George St. Pierre in it. They would need to work out some some contractual understandings in order uh-huh. for him to come back and, and it make financial sense for him. But one of the, the, the fights he tossed out that might be a possibility for Ro- him? Robbie Lawler? How about UFC middleweight champion Michael Bisping? Now, I'm just saying, is anybody else reminded of when Randy Couture came out of retirement to fight at heavyweight and basically just straight up admitted that he did it because he saw that Tim Sylvia was the UFC heavyweight champion and thought, well, I can beat that guy and then I'll be a champion again. I'm just saying that's kind of what it seems like to me. And it seems like admittedly kind of a sweet move on GSP's part. I'm just saying, come on, George, we can do better than that. Right? Well, Ben, I know you were up there on the Hill on Saturday night with your expansive cable package uh, and all the other modern conveniences. So you probably didn't see this. Literally looking down on you. Literally looking down on me. So I know that like you probably kicked it over to FS2 to watch the start of the UFC uh, main card when it was clear that the, the beginning of Fight Night 89 was going to be preempted uh, by truck racing. But I did not have that luxury. So I sat on my couch uh, and watched 10 or 15 minutes of the truck racing until the actual UFC came on. Uh, and this week, I'm just saying, I got to tell you, man, I was reminded... Or at least I, the thing that struck me from the truck racing was how much the truck racing broadcast reminded me of a UFC broadcast. Really? Like just dudes acting super over the top of whatever was going on at the truck racing. Like that this was going to, this was the biggest thing that had ever happened anywhere on any planet, even ending the broadcast by saying, what a special night tonight here at the Iowa Speedway. And then to have a sideline interviewer ask the guy who won the race, run us through the last couple of restarts, which is obviously the truck racing equivalent of walk us through this replay. So I'm just saying truck truck racing and, and MMA, not as different as you might think, man. I'm just saying. So you're saying maybe we start thinking about doing a truck racing podcast. Yeah, if you got another hour, another extra hour, we could get heavy into truck racing. The co-main restart. I don't, yeah, we'll work on we'll, it. We'll workshop it. Yeah. Don't you worry. We'll look up Wikipedia. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We're out. You know, uh, the guy from The Running Man with the chainsaw? Buzzsaw? Yeah, I interviewed that guy once. Why? He came to town uh, in his in his golden years as part of a strongman competition. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I interviewed Buzzsaw. And that's why you were all the Probably why. Probably why The Running Man.